Welcome ravenous readers and culture consumers to Bohemian Geek Studies. The place where nerdy knights gather together to debate the finer points of heraldry. Uh, no, no, that's not it. Uh, to share our insatiable thirst for intellectual discussions about our favorite books, shows, and movies. Last time we explored the theme, Errors of the Ego. Errors that even our beloved heroine Matilda makes as she engages in a covert operation to superglue her father's hat onto his head. Yep, and her plot for revenge works, at least in some ways, and her father is left with an incredibly bad hairdo, with bits of hat and patches of hair still stuck to his head. This episode, we explore losing control. Will, can you start our short recap on Chapter 4, entitled The Ghost, before we take a detailed dorky dive into the text? With pleasure. Now, Mr. Harry Wormwood has had relatively good behavior for, for about a week, and that's relatively good for him, we think. Now, once that comparatively calm week passes, though, we see we see him arrive home in a foul, foul mood that he seems set to pass on to others. Could the foul mood be because he looks like a mangy rat in a loud check suit? Could Maybe. be. Could be, yeah. Uh, Matilda, not knowing that her dad's about to boil over, continues to cozily read her book by the television as her mother runs and hides, making Matilda the easy target for her dad's wrath. Now, the lovely picture of Matilda reading contentedly is suddenly ripped to shreds when her father snatches her library book from her hands and tears it apart, a vandal, leaving nothing but scraps of paper, two lonely book covers, and a blaring TV behind them. Instead of crying, Matilda begins planning a counterattack. This plan involves paying a neighborhood friend to borrow his parrot so that, unbeknownst to him, she can knowingly and intentionally shove it up a chimney to enact her revenge in secret. Yikes. And as part of the detailed dorky dive, we'll discuss whether her plan was a success and what success actually means here and whether we should be worried about that. So the theme for today's episode, like I said earlier, is losing control. With the stage now set, let's dive in. In many ways, because of the troubling words and actions of the Wormwood parents, it is daunting to try to determine an appropriate way to discuss, frankly, the substance of the chapter in terms of character motivation here. Yeah, but I mean, a lot of a lot of what will stand out to our readers, like stood out to me, was how horrifying the acts of this chapter are. Specifically, Mr. Wormwood destroying a library book. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, those are sacred. You know, as as a kid, I would be mortified when I if I even ripped a page in a book, right? Because but, it's like, oh no, what do I do? What do I do? I mean, have you ever had that? Even dog earring, like yeah. um, folding over a corner. Yep. I knew I could maybe do that to my book, but a uh -huh. library book, absolutely not. Yeah. Right, exactly. So like dog earring accidentally tearing a page, that's the stuff that sets us off. So, you know, you read this and it's like, oh man, that's that's terrible. And so, you know, as a kid reading the book, I'm naturally 100% on Matilda's side when she plots another way to get back her, at her father. It's like, whatever it takes, you know? But again, we need to talk about the back and forth uh, between Matilda and her father. And reading it now as an adult, we're much more aware of the power dynamics and the abuse that causes Matilda to lash out and then her father to return fire. Absolutely, because there's a stark, stark difference between a loved one or a family member having an off day mm -hmm. and being around someone who is being intentionally, emotionally abusive. Mr. Wormwood seems to oscillate between the two and the the latter absolutely unequivocally is not acceptable. Mm -hmm. So looking to the text directly, quote, there was a comparative calm in the Wormwood household for about a week after the superglue episode. The experience had clearly chastened Mr. Wormwood and he seemed temporarily to have lost his taste for boasting and bullying. Then suddenly he struck again. Perhaps he had had a bad day at the garage and had not sold enough crummy secondhand cars. There are many things that make a man irritable when he arrives home from work in the evening, and a sensible wife will usually notice the storm signals and will leave him alone until he simmers down. Uh-oh, yikes, <laughs> yikes. Yeah. yeah, and right there, it's like, 
maybe this doesn't happen if you're reading it as a kid, but as an adult, you just get sucked right out of the narrative by that last sentence, right? Absolutely. You know, for for a while, you're like, oh, Mr. Wormwood's going about his day. He's he's not having a good time. But then all of a sudden, you you get that last sentence, and it's like, oh man, the author's patriarchy is showing. Yeah. It's now this is one of maybe one of the most objectionable passages in the entire book for a couple of reasons. First, we know that this incident takes place about a week after that last one with superglue and our author is quick to place the blame on some external factor like Mr. Wormwood having a bad day at work. But let's be honest, we all know that he's still picking the pieces of hat off his head. He's still smelling that superglue. Parts of his scalp are coming off with it. Not cool. He's probably been walking around the village getting stared at and it's been grading for days and of course he knows subconsciously that Matilda is behind this. So of course he's going to lash out at her. So you know, while it's obviously not Matilda's fault and the power dynamic here is still completely lopsided, her father's act of vandalism can't be separated from no. Matilda's prank with a hat. He's definitely going to be resentful over it. Yeah, absolutely. And let's consider what the author might be symbolizing here for us and mm-hmm. whether or not there's kind of an intentional pattern here. Sure. Quite possibly, you know, we're still only chapter four into the book, but we're already seeing that all of Matilda's attacks so far seem to be targeting her father's head and mind. The hat covering the actual physical head and Mm -hmm. somewhat the mental persona of him. We deeply dove into that with respect to the feather symbolism last episode. And then in this episode, we'll, we'll get into it deeper once we get further into the chapter but the idea of a ghost haunting one's home what he's responsible for his kingdom that's Mm -hmm. again mental and then as a teaser for an upcoming chapter matilda strikes out at her father's head yet again by making sure that he bleaches his own hair which again is both a physical attack to his physical head and Mm -hmm. a just another mental barrage at her father's pride for his for his looks that one of the things of which he is actually proud of and you get the sense that he's not really proud of much in the looks department so she's she's really engaged in a in a systematic assault against her father Mm -hmm. yeah and the blows like you said uh, it's like these three straight chapters the blows to his psyche are going to be continuous right as you rightly point out he's a very vain person he's not proud of much but his appearance is one of them how he dresses how he looks and his you know touching on our theme today of control and his feeling of possession over his home and when those things are challenged we can see it's like matilda's challenging each each one of those aspects repeatedly over these chapters. Yep, yep. And and again, not to paint Mr. Wormwood as a sympathetic character by- Yeah, no, he's not. Yeah, by any stretch of the imagination. But for a moment, place yourself in the position where weekly you are being physically assaulted and you have these pressures on you. It's not truly a chicken and an egg quandary here, right? Because of the power dynamics that we keep referring to here- But again, there is, I think, a lesson to be learned where someone has to break the chain. You Mm -hmm. want it to be the parent, but ultimately, at the end of the day, you want people to be kinder than what we're seeing happen in the Wormwood home. Right. And here, yeah, it's very clear. It's never going to be the Wormwoods to break that cycle of abuse. And so we'll find out later in the book, and kind of like we discussed in our earlier chapters, with the good influence of teachers and mentors who exert a positive influence, you know, to help break that cycle. Reading these chapters with Mr. Wormwood and what happens to him actually reminded me a lot of uh, in Home Alone. Yeah. Um, with with the physical injuries that the, that the bandits have when they try to break into the McAllister household. And at least one of them, yeah, so Joe Pesci's character is incredibly vain. It's like his his gold tooth, right? And he ends up losing right. that too. And so it, it's it's a, this is a little bit like that. And so moving on to our second objectionable point of this, what we talked about earlier about being kind of sucked out of the narrative by that last sentence, we get the author giving us a very very antiquated notion of a single income household with a male breadwinner, and and not just that single income, right? It's also when he says a woman needs to be able to sense when her husband has had a bad day and back off. 
the implication there is that if if the wife there engages with the husband on anything remotely controversial, and then the husband lashes out, and then it's her fault, and we get into victim blaming, and that is just a tough, tough look on the part of the author. Absolutely. And to once again look, as we like to do here, at some of the parallels that we may or may not see with mm-hmm. our one of our favorite s- series, Harry Potter, there's like a tinfoil time here where if we assume that the Wormwoods might have some magical family ancestry, and again, this is getting to something that we really want to jump to kind of after we see Matilda go to school, mm-hmm. but, but let's put on our tinfoil and say perhaps Mr. Wormwood, like Uncle Vernon, knows his child has the possibility for magic, and perhaps he despises it and wants to stomp it out. Perhaps as we kind of always hint at but never really dive into yet, perhaps Matilda's mother, just like Seamus's parents, never disclosed that she was a witch until after Mrs. No First Name Wormwood Mm -hmm. and Harry Wormwood got married contributing to the marital discord right like uh why why are they so dissatisfied with one another but staying together right and maybe harry wormwood's abuse like uncle vernon's abuse is aimed partially at stomping out that magical power that he perceives matilda and harry to possess and he harry wormwood that is wants a normal wife who cooks, cleans, does the domestic responsibilities that Petunia was all more than happy to Mm -hmm. do. And he wants a quote-unquote normal, non-magical daughter, which Matilda, with all of her extraordinariness, even way earlier than a Hogwarts age, is possessing. Mm -hmm. Instead, he gets a witch wife who detaches herself and a budding witch daughter who needs to attend a Hogwarts feeder school because she's just that flipping powerful and there's nothing he can do about it. So he lashes out just like Uncle Vernon because that's just what lashing out is, period. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's all that they can do within their power, right? And, you know, I think that... I think that some of our listeners and some Matilda readers, they may want to meet us halfway on this. You know, the idea, I think, is pretty clear that magic and reading aren't too different, right? Right. There's a lot of, there's a lot of magic in the books that Matilda reads, and Harry Wormwood can't understand them, so he rips the pages out of her book, and he, you know, sits her down in front of a television to try to wipe the books out of her mind, basically. That still shouldn't stop us from doing some fun speculation about, about Matilda, her magic, and how... Crunchum Hall is a Hogwarts feeder school, I think. So we should totally do that still, too. Going back to uh, this author here and the author's discussion of uh, single-income families and setting husbands off, readers, I think, have always had a back and forth about whether Roald Dahl personally supports this narrative and and, um, whether he, he is himself in the view of the author and whether he's doing anything to fight against some of these very anti-feminist or or misogynistic viewpoints in Matilda which is otherwise you know Matilda's a hero for many uh many right. girls women so so that's something that we all definitely need to look at and in, in you know not just in in that passage but he portrays Mr. Wormwood as a bad mother who's neglectful fat and vain and this passage really is something that people will always point to in in saying that Roald Dahl is uh, is advancing some really problematic viewpoints. And so, but it's kind of difficult that, you know, the default, unless we know otherwise, is to treat the narrator as the author, unless the author gives us some indication otherwise. But Dahl doesn't do anything like that in this book. To that end, returning back to the text, when Mr. Wormwood arrived back from the garage that evening, his face was, quote, as dark as a thundercloud. And somebody, anybody, was clearly for the high jump pretty soon. His wife recognized the signs immediately and made herself scarce, end quote. And so to break this down, sort of as a vocab moment, I said, Yeah, go for it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. to be the high jump, which is the words RD used here, that's a British informal phrase. And that expression was first recorded back in the early early 20th century as a military term, meaning, quote, to be put on trial before your commanding officer. And it was by hanging. So when you look at it again, what the 
what the narrator is telling you is Mr. Wormwood is arriving home and he is out for blood. That's not what you want him to be looking out for when he arrives home from work. Not no. at all. And, and I guess the implication is that he's the commanding officer here, right? And it's the subordinates in the family, whether it's Mrs. Wormwood or Michael or Matilda, who really need to be watching out for his wrath. Exactly, exactly. This is, this is saying everyone in his family is going to be put on trial because he is the commanding officer and everyone's got to line up and mm-hmm. get into order. Absolutely, spot on. Yeah, so <laughs> not a very good image. And so then Mrs. Wormwood, of course, makes herself scarce and leaves Matilda as the only only one out there. Uh, and then Harry Wormwood enters that living room. Matilda is curled up safely in the armchair reading her book, and he immediately starts ne- needling her and kind of trolling her, right? He tries to get a reaction out of her by turning on the TV and turning it up. But Matilda, the savvy, smart reader that she is, uh, has trained herself to block out the sounds. Like, quote from the book is she kept right on reading and for some reason this infuriated the father and and i love that quote because it Mm -hmm. subtly shows us that mr wormwood in his agitation is sometimes in our irritation we do just want to see if we can get someone else to be irritated and to get on our level. I mean, I have a little sister. I was a big sister. Uh-huh. Been there. Did that. I'm not touching you. She's not touching me. Yada yada. Exactly. And so for our deep dive, we're going to be focusing on the symbolism surrounding that television. Because remember, as Will just said, Mr. Wormwood enters the room, sees Matilda so content, turns on the TV and blares it. Why? Why is it the television that he turns on blaring? So so please put a sparkly mental pin on Matilda's ability to block out the television and the parents in particular clear obsessive use and return to it to solve and also cause family trouble. Mm-hmm. What we want to highlight now, though, is that when you closely inspect the author's word choice here, you'll notice the times when Ronald Dahl switches from Mr. Wormwood to the father. So for any of you who are just listening to us auditorially, we suggest, if possible, return to your childhood bookshelf that maybe has Matilda on it or visit a local library so that you can see those very subtle but notable differences. Yeah, so there's, you know, there's references to Mr. Wormwood, to Harry, but then there's, then there's the father or the mother referring to either of the Wormwoods. Um, we don't have uh, a clean electronic copy of Matilda to, to do a kind of a, a control F word search here to see if there's a pattern, but it does kind of seem like when Mr. Wormwood is being particularly atrocious, the narrator uh, distances himself by reducing uh, the fictional father to just that general descriptor of, quote, the father. And similar things certainly happen with respect to Mrs. Wormwood slash the mother, Mm -hmm. but it's almost further and more twisted because as you pointed out in an earlier episode, Will, she never gets the benefit of a first name. Yeah, she just never even gets it. So yeah, we, we see it more. It stands out more with, with, uh, with Harry Wormwood. And here... It's just in case anybody had any doubts, the the text then goes on to say, uh, perhaps his anger was intensified because he saw her getting pleasure from something that was beyond his reach. And I wonder, and this gets to what we had just been talking about, Mm -hmm. perhaps is it that he can't read? Is that maybe what some of the anger is coming from? I know, you know, when I feel lost, afraid, unsure how to proceed, that can be very frantic causing. Mm-hmm, and right. so I'm wondering, is it that his parents or his home life, he wasn't encouraged or perhaps he had tried to and because of dyslexia or or something that made reading harder for him and he didn't get the help that he needed maybe that's what's prevented him from having pleasure through reading and seeing other people receive it, even if it is his own daughter. It's it's the absence of the ability to have wish fulfillment. Perhaps it's because he can't engage in escapism like his daughter Matilda clearly can, like his wife can with TV or quote unquote bingo. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, perhaps he's 
angry. I, I get it. I love escaping into fantastical worlds. That's what we're doing a podcast for. I mean, it, my it goodness. Is. That's right. We are, yeah, we are in it deep, my friend. And so maybe it's all of those things. Maybe it's none of those things. Maybe it's feeling the pressures of being the seemingly only breadwinner of the household. You know, coal turns to diamonds under pressure. Mm-hmm. But shame and resentment are anger after pressure and and so i wonder we never get the benefit or the detriment frankly of Mm -hmm. knowing what harry actually thinks here instead we are left with his actions but these actions speak volumes. Yep, absolutely. And you're right. We're, we're we're kind of left with his actions alone and not knowing how he got to where he did. You know, we know that Dahl uh, intended this book and some of his other book and texts to be anti-television. But it's not like, given when we think this takes place, it's not like Mr. Wormwood would have, would have had his mind melted or ruined by television. It's much more likely that this is a pattern that, you know, either came from not having parents that educated him or parents that were neglectful. So it, it lends more credence to the idea that this is all a cycle. Yeah. But yeah. So so going back to, to the text and the idea that it's really Harry's, we're left with Harry's actions. Um, he next uh, snatches the book out of Matilda's hands. He berates all American authors as if he knows any different, and begins ripping pages out of the book in handfuls. Yeah, and let's be clear. Snatching the book itself is a violent, and I think this is how you phrased it, Will, and it's so apt, a profane act for Mm -hmm. bookworms that will find the book and the violations done to the book particularly horrifying. Will and I, me being former, Will being current lawyers, we know that in tort law, that's a battery. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, you, You can't go around doing that sort of thing. Right. It's, it's, it's battery in the same way that actually physically hitting somebody would be. Right. Yeah. And, you, and like you said, you don't, you don't do that unless you're about ready to throw down, which is exactly what War- Mr. Wormwood does. And it, it just furthers, you know, what he started this chapter doing, coming in with a thundercloud turning on the TV, blaring, uh, kind of abuse by sound first. And then when he didn't get the attention, moving on to the next step. Yep. And so for those of you who, like us, really appreciate dorky little nuggets, the book that was being destroyed here is The Red Pony. And when he destroys it, he snarls, quote, that if it's by an American, it's certain to be filth. Us, having never read John Steinbeck's work, we quickly did a little bit of Googling, and it looks like Red Pony is largely about grappling with life, death, and becoming a man through raising horses. Mm -hmm. Again, this is without reading it at all, but you have to wonder, and perhaps maybe one of our listeners who has read both can can clue us in please you know on twitter on instagram let us know if there's something that we're missing here but one has to wonder why was it this book in particular that doll allowed to be destroyed yeah i think there's a lot probably i, I might have read this in school i just can't remember it now um I, I remember other steinbeck stuff like the grapes of wrath much better but with with this one it's some there's a lot of coming of age and like a lot of the th- themes about masculinity in there and and yeah it would be really interesting to know if there's there's something deeper there i'm i'm not 100 percent sure it is interesting that he he really rips on american authors though right because we know from the first chapter they're watching american television they're watching american soap operas or something else on their television and you have to wonder if it's an acknowledgement that he knows that what he's watching on television is just absolute filth as he calls it but he can't help it like because he just he just has to he it's compulsory for him Yeah, it's almost as if he can't help but be hypocritical. I mean, my guy, just confess that it's a guilty pleasure. Go on, lean into it. It's it's okay. (laughs) And, you know, we get the sense that they watch all this television, but they probably don't talk about it, right? right? They're not talking about engaging with the characters or the stories. They might be mesmerized by it, but he still thinks it's it's, it's filth, apparently. Dahl, like we've talked about, 
wanted this book and a lot of his other works to be pro-book, anti-television, and it really just seems that they're they're mesmerized, they're hypnotized, or they're under some kind of spell uh, from the television that most of the Wormwoods, except for Matilda, can't resist. And but it seems like Mr. Wormwood does realize that there's a there's something subversive going on that he's being hypnotized by his television, but he can't get out of it, and he doesn't have any control over it, which makes him angry. Which got us thinking, mm -hmm. in particular for some of our. Adult listeners, imagine the show Breaking Bad, because this episode, we're going to do our deep dive on another symbol from this and other chapters, the ever-present television. does that 12-inch telly symbolize for Mr. Wormwood and the rest of the family, and how does it compare to another symbol that may be familiar to some of our other listeners, the pool of the Walter White family in the show Breaking Bad? Yeah, and before we go into this, all the credit goes to you for picking up on this because it is a phenomenal comparison. Um, <laughs> yeah, no problem, but it's, it's really fun to think about it in this way. So, just to get into it, um, like we've talked about, our friend Ronnie D hated those televisions. Um, just absolute hated them. Yeah, hit us with some examples, Will, because you're much deeper into the doll well. I don't know. <laughs> the doll archive, the dar okay. doll bookcase than I Yeah, okay. Um but yeah, so some examples stand out, right? And so we have uh we have Mike T V, who is a character in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, obviously not the most sympathetic character, and everything for him kind of has to relate back to a television show or to the television. And his ultimate fate, spoilers to our readers, is that he that he ends up stuck in the television himself, uh miniaturizing himself. Gotcha. Um, yeah. And our our friend Matt, who helped look into this chapter. Uh, and do some research, uh, he reminded us that Roald Dahl wrote a scathing poem called uh, Television, and it's worth, it's worth reading here. So this is an excerpt, and so go for it. The most important thing we've learned, so far as children are concerned, is never, never, never let them near your television set. Or better still, just don't install that idiotic thing at all, and some more. But if we take this set away, what shall we do to entertain? Our darling children, please explain! We'll answer this by asking you, what used the darlings one to do? How used they keep themselves contented before this monster was invented? Have you forgotten? Don't you know? We'll say it very loud and slow. They used to read. They'd read and read and read and read and then proceed to read some more. <laughs> yeah, nice. Now that we've got that little ditty behind us, the Wormwoods yeah. have a ritual we explored in chapter two. Each night they turn on the television and they consume, 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 consume. The food's not good for them, and certainly the television or what they do around it doesn't seem to be good for family bonding either. Mm -hmm. So now that we understand Ronald Dahl's poem, let's take a closer exploration comparing the two heads of household, Harry Wormwood and Walter White, and what the television and pool may symbolize here. Okay, great. So Mr. Wormwood, on one hand, uh, we have a very vain and superficial. He needs those material things in his life. Um, he's he's very preoccupied with his own appearance and that of having uh, these material things um, in his family. So we, he these symbols are super important to him. He, he eats a large breakfast every morning. He has this large house with a white fence. He wears these loud suits and hats, uh, including that that we talked about and he has you know the the wife and two kids that he probably thinks that he he has to have to be successful and and let's be honest he he obviously sees them as possessions as well and of course we have this this wonderful 12 inch television that he loves to talk about so mr wormwood has all of these things and his idea of success includes all of these things and of course he turns to fraud to get the money to be able to have these things yep and so for those of you unfamiliar with the show breaking bad that's okay we'll keep it short and concise for all of you folks out there Walter White is in a very similar situation to Harry Wormwood. It's mm -hmm. complicated, of course, because Walter turns to making and dealing in blue-coated crystals after he finds out he has a apparent terminal illness, cancer, spoiler mm -hmm. alert, 
But Walter also has a relationship with those items in his life that symbolize comfortable suburban living. And let's let's also look, of course, Walter White, head, if not predominantly sole breadwinner, just like Harry Wormwood. That's right. Both of them have an older son who they envision will follow their leads, at least in some respects, Walter White Jr. for Mm -hmm. a while. And um, they also have a younger daughter. Really, one of the biggest differences is how they emote love to their children. In some ways, Walter sort of does a better job of that than Harry Wormwood, but Mm -hmm. that is totally up for debate and what you consider to be good role models because at the end of the day, neither of these men fit that mold. Right. And so when we look at those items that symbolize the comforts of suburban living for Walter White, it's his house. Same for Mr. Wormwood. It's Mm -hmm. his car. Same thing. The pizza he can bring home. Same thing. Bread on the table. Mm -hmm. And then his pool. So here, the pool, he takes miraculous, meticulous care of this pool to the greatest extent that he can, even though just like Mr. Wormwood, we never, we never really see him thoroughly enjoy pool time. Right, right. He, yeah, Mr. Mr. Wormwood certainly has his time in front of the television, but he doesn't seem to be enjoying it, enjoying it in any meaningful way. Like you said, Walter White doesn't get to enjoy his pool. Um, I'm going to pause for a quick second. Kind of early, earlier, like we said, we don't know a lot about Mr. Wormwood's motivations. And I just, I just think it's really interesting that, yeah. that we have shows like that, that people talk about as being in the golden age of television, Breaking Bad, Sopranos, about these characters who aren't really heroes or anti-heroes or just like straight up villains, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like Tony Soprano and and Walter White. And we got these deep dives into these characters and their motivations. And so maybe 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 Mr. Wormwood was a little ahead of his time, or or you know, Dahl in the late '80s wasn't thinking about doing it this way. But you know, they're they're not too different. So yeah, getting back on track. Um, no, you know, no, talking. you're totally right. We need we need a new revamped Breaking Bad Matilda. We, we took the <laughs> Mr. from the Brits, and they, that's right. And we'll take Matilda from them. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, and so so going back to Walter White, he can't keep that pool clean. It's it's he's fishing leaves out of it he's fishing other stuff out of it um and he can't keep his family separate from his uh, illegal acts and drug dealing very quickly for our readers who either haven't seen uh breaking bad in a while or haven't seen it at all um you see repeatedly over the course of breaking bad either walter's pool or other pools become contaminated um impure if you want to use the the drug making term or altered as a result of what walter does or the pool itself is is witness to or the nexus of an act of violence and harm. There's a famous uh, pink teddy bear in season two. Uh, his, Walter's wife, Skylar, tries to harm herself uh, in the pool in season five. So we see at various points how the pool in Breaking Bad is this tangible thing that should, to Walter and other people, or at least they think, symbolize peace and wealth and success. But I think as the viewer, um, and, and Walter himself maybe, are, are forced to wonder, what's the cost of this? Right, right. We, we constantly see throughout the entirety, I think, of Matilda, or at least the chapters where we're inside the Wormwood home for, for the large part, and then similarly within the, the White's household, whenever they're together as a family, it's usually around the pool for some sort of celebration, mm-hmm. or it's normally for a TV dinner. It's a, it's a ritual right. to such toxicity frankly in the it's the in the family it's putting these these symbols of success having a pool having a television on a pedestal at the expense of true family time mm-hmm. one could argue right yeah totally and uh and, and ritual is is the exact perfect word for this right we're talking about magic we're talking about whether there's there's magic in these these items or these families and what is what are we talking about with our theme of loss of control but also loss of 
control over a ritual, right? Because a ritual is a very controlled thing. It's a it's a repeated pattern of of, of words or acts that that somebody wants to use to bring about some kind of conclusion. Um, with uh, Mr. Wormwood and Walter White, these rituals are are supposed to be things that they have to to get to happiness, you know, and contentedness. But they don't have control over these rituals. These rituals, to some degree, have control over them because the cost of the rituals is so high. With Mr. Wormwood and Walter White, they're all these illegal acts. Um, Mr. Wormwood, you know, sustains these uh, these rituals of, of materiality by these by his fraud, and by the end of the book, they catch up to him. And so these physical objects that we're talking about, the pool, uh, the television, are, are really a symbol or a talisman of how little control they have and how corrupt they are. And for our younger at heart readers, we can draw a comparison to the Lorax and the character, the Lunsler. He's so caught up in creating these sneeze that he forgets that what everyone truly, definitely, definitively needs. In some ways, the Onceler ends up being the more moral villain than even Walter White or Harry Wormwood because the Onceler at the end of the book, at the end of the story, actually admits the errors of his ways. And that was our detailed dorky dive uh, this episode into pools and televisions and these needs. And how one loses control around things that people think they need. Nice, that was very poetic. Returning to the text thinking again once more about these rituals and spells uh, about the television we can look at the book that matilda's reading like a counter spell to this ritual uh, and when he's presented with that mr wormwood lashes out with a destructive force and i love the idea of books as a counter spell because I've always thought of them as like a counterspell for ignorance or kind of as J.K. Rowling treated them, kind of the monster books of monsters. As right. Will said earlier, books have power. Knowledge is power. Yep. And and Matilda knows this. Her, you know, it's the... It's the way that she's managed to get some power for himself, for herself. It's the way that she's managed to take herself out of this terrible family situation. And it's the way that she's learned how to develop that force field of contentment around her when she's reading a book and learning how to block out that distracting noise of a blaring TV or her abusive family. And when he rips the pages out of the book in handfuls, it's absolutely shocking to the reader for the, for the first time, for the second time, arguably indefinitely, frankly. <laughs> yeah. So, so Sarah, why don't you treat us to, uh, to a reading of that, of that text that you just talked about? Matilda froze in horror. The father kept going. There seemed little doubt that the man felt some sort of jealousy. How dare she... He seemed to be saying with each rip of a page, how dare she enjoy reading when he couldn't? How dare she? And it's this, this, this constant, how dare my daughter do something that seems to indicate to at least us that this is shame being transmuted, being transformed into anger. Is this really what's going on here? We just... We just don't know, but we can sense him losing control. That's right. Absolutely. There's our theme again. He he can't help himself. He 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 has these feelings, and like you said, they they turn into anger and they turn into action. He has no control over what he over what he's doing, and the thing that he uses to symbolize his his success, the television, the thing that he uses to control himself and his family while they're eating dinner, suddenly doesn't have a hold over Matilda anymore, and that is unacceptable to Mr. Wormwood, and he has to lash out. She cries out, that's a library book, and that she has to return it to Mrs. Phelps, but he continues until there's nothing left telling Matilda that she'll have to quote-unquote save her pocket money until there's enough in the kitty to buy a new one for your precious Mrs. Phelps. Won't you, he demands to her. 
Yeah, it's such a spiteful passage. But yeah, two two very quick points. For all the abuse that Matilda gets, which is a lot, she does apparently have some kind of allowance, which is more than we know that Harry Potter gets, who is, from what we can tell, just a few miles away from Matilda. Noted. Yeah. And and second, that reference to the precious Mrs. Phelps is really telling here because Mr. Wormwood, he's being spiteful, but he's also so clearly threatened by this other adult figure in Matilda's life who is who is giving Matilda this uh, this parentage or guidance that he's not giving himself or he that he can't give. And it's undermining his authority. It's undermining his control. There's our theme again. And that is clearly a threat to Mr. Wormwood. And thinking about that, we we go back to Mrs. Phelps, uh, our first, the first character that we did a deep dive on. Um, and maybe she had a point when she decided to recommend Matilda b- books, but not push further. It's very possible that she's had this similar experience before. And because a lot of parents, even well-meaning ones, don't appreciate perceived threats to their authority. And so maybe Mrs. Phelps was just doing what she thought that she could. And Miss, Miss Honey will also see her kind of challenges later on. Now, after shouting about Mrs. Phelps, Harry, quote, dropped the now empty covers of the book in the trash basket and marched out of the room, leaving the telly blaring, end quote. And Matilda, to her credit, that that telly doesn't doesn't hold any spell over her. And so she immediately thinks about how to counterattack. The quote from the book is, most children in Matilda's place would have burst into floods of tears. She didn't do this. She sat there very still and white and thoughtful. She seemed to know that neither crying nor sulking ever got anyone anywhere. And let's take a quick beat. This is a either author's assumption here or narrator's assumption or both with Mm -hmm. respect to how most children would respond. Would most children respond like this? Did Harry James Potter? Did James Harry Trotter for us James and the Giant Peach? Uh, fans do this mm-hmm. I'm not convinced that all children would quote unquote break into tears particularly after a person here unfortunately a father has continued to show these kind of bad behaviors remember this is by no means the first or second time this has happened to Matilda with with Harry Wormwood perhaps Ronald <laughs> Perhaps Ronnie D, uh, perhaps Roald Dahl is saying that, quote unquote, most children encompasses abused but not abused kids, which really, really hurts and tugs at the heartstrings. Mm -hmm. Right. You have to think there needs to be or there ought to be some sort of sharpened distinction here. And one has to question whether most abused children would break into tears or not. And and that's, again, outside of the scope of our expertise. From my limited understanding is that the children in stressful situations like these learn coping methods, frankly, and do not necessarily express emotions of fear or, frankly, anything. We see Michael, for example, go pretty much moot to prevent further engagement by the abuser, presumably here, Harry. Mm -hmm. And so Matilda's been through absolutely horrible conditions, and gaslighting here is a normal, unfortunately, emotional reaction, just as much as crying and sulking, quote-unquote, won't get you anywhere. It's clear that Matilda believes she's alone and needs to act accordingly. I, I do wonder, uh, you know, I'm not a professional either, but I think you're exactly, it sounds like you're exactly right there. Uh, you know, with, with, with kids in that situation, a lot of times they're going to, to cope or they're going to just shut down because they're not sure. They're, they're going to be tentative in terms of thinking about how the abuser is going to react and they may well shut down and not engage any further. So going back to the text, Dahl says the quote, quote, the only sensible thing to do when you are attacked is to counterattack. He says that Napoleon said that we 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 can't we can't find any source for that, but we yeah. Yeah, we looked. <laughs> yeah, we we did. Yeah. But but if he did make it up, he, you know, the the idea that this book contains just the 
parent-child relationship being war, like Napoleonic War, is something that we get a couple of times here in this book. First here, and then later um, from a, a character called a uh, character named Hortensia. Yeah. So we'll we'll put it as a meta Napoleon reference yeah. that only exists within this world, which is really interesting to think about because, but for us exploring it. I would have assumed, oh, sure, Napoleon said it because it's in a book. That's, <laughs> that's, again, the dangers and beauties of what's contained in a book, right? Yep, exactly. Yeah. And, and Dahl's mind, Dahl certainly had a, a, a special mind himself, too, when it came to inventing words and, it seems, inventing quotes. Um, and uh, moving to Matilda's mind, Dahl writes that, quote, Matilda's wonderfully subtle mind was already at work devising yet another suitable punishment for the poisonous parent. Going to our theme for a second, he, she's taking control back. And going back to what you, you what we mentioned earlier about Mr. Wormwood being referenced as the father, here he's the poisonous parent, which sounds like a venomous plant. Yeah, and you know, we see this this theme of taking control back in the face of fear in some of our favorite books or shows. It's kind of one of those classic classic characteristics, if you will, of, of a hero. I remember when we were listening to one of our favorite podcasts, um, Binge Mode, they did this lovely little breakdown about Harry and Ron from back in Sorcerer's Stone, book mm -hmm. one, what they had to do when Hermione was locked in a bathroom stall with a troll versus how Draco Malfoy would respond if Crabbe or Goyle were in peril. There in Harry Potter, quote unquote, the only sensible thing to do was to protect Hermione. And having just watched Rebels season four, uh -huh. without any spoilers, you see that same sort of, well, there was nothing else I could do but try and help someone else be the mantra of one of the lead heroes and protagonists because that's what we expect. We want our leaders, if they are truly to be noble and good, to try to help mm -hmm. others. Yeah, that's a great point. And it's not just that they want to help, right? It's that wanting to help or doing that comes naturally to them. It's like they don't have a second thought about it. They just go ahead and do it as if it's instinctual. And, and for Matilda, what's instinctual, it seems, is to take control back by planning a counterattack or going going straight to war, right? And and her counterattack in this chapter takes the form of borrowing a parrot from her friend Fred, a six-year-old who lives around the corner. She has made friends with this boy, and she goes over to her friend's house the next afternoon after her mom heads, quote, for another session of bingo, end quote, um, to see or to check out Fred's parrot and to see how well it actually talks. And sharing another little bird-related tidbit, since apparently that's the thing that I do here, the truly magnificent blue and yellow parrot is most likely a macaw, which is a type of bird that I had really wanted when I was growing up. Oh, cool. And the cage that you see pictured in the book very much like Hedwig's cage is not even close to big enough mm -hmm. uh, for this parrot or for that owl. Importantly, we see that as Matilda opts for revenge and darker deeds, as opposed to choosing to engage in the pleasures of reading, which she could go back to, she decides instead to go the vengeance route. Yeah. And there's there seems to be a cost to this, right? You know, even at Matilda's young age, it doesn't seem like she values sentient, sentient life, which this macaw is clearly when she when it's really just another tool that she uses to achieve her goals. She's talking to her friend and looking at her his his pet uh, parrot and she says, make it talk. I mean, that's pretty Tom Riddle, right? Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> Um, that reminded me immediately, and let's be clear, listeners, Matilda is my homegirl. I adore <laughs> her. I love, love Matilda, but the whole make it talk command reminded both of us very much of the Tom Riddle command to Dumbledore, tell me the truth, yeah. when he's trying to suss out, you know, are you a wizard? Yeah. Yes. Yes, I am. 
prove it, Tom Riddle commands, at once in the same commanding tone in which he had said, tell the truth. You get that slytherin I don't, you know what? I'm not going to say it's a Slytherin trait. You get, you get a sense that there's something off going on here. And I'm not going to put it on House Slytherin. I totally agree. Yeah, it's it's not because with, with House Slytherin, it's it's not like they have, it's not having a, like having a disregard for human life or or, or animal life is a trait of House Slytherin, right? But it, it but yeah, I, I totally agree. I don't think we need to put it all on that one house, but it it is a potentially disturbing thing to see in these characters. It's a disturbing parallel to be able to yeah. draw from between one of the worst villains of childhood literature and one of the greatest heroines of childhood literature to be able to draw that parallel. Yeah, that's perfect. And r- immediately after Matilda says, hey, make it talk, her her six-year-old friend, who as far as we know is a very nice ordinary kid, is like, hold, hold on, you know, hold on, dude. <laughs> and he's like... Wait. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, and he, and he straight up says, you can't make a talk. You have to be patient. It'll talk when it feels like it. And and Matilda clearly hasn't learned patience from her parents. And the only person who she might have learned it from in her life is is thus far Mrs. Phelps. And, you know, Fred's, Fred's this breath of fresh air at this point. Even though Matilda's our protagonist, he has to be like, whoa there. It's, you know, you, you can't just make it, make it talk. You can't just force it. Yeah, and it's only once Matilda learns that the parrot can talk like a human, AKA only once she learns, yes, this this parrot does continue to have value for me, that she gives it praise. And it's then that we learn just how quickly Matilda and Fred are willing to engage in some commerce over an, at least for now, endangered animal with a high degree of intelligence. So not a good look for either one of them. Yeah, our, our four and six-year-olds, respectively. <laughs> and yeah, and the book, the quote from the book is, will you lend uh, the, the gold and blue macaw to me for just one night? No, Fred said, certainly not. I'll give you all my next week's pocket money, Matilda said. That was different. Fred thought about it for a few seconds. All right, then, he said, if you promise to return him tomorrow. I mean, from the lighthearted perspective, hey, it's money. And yeah. money is cool when you're a kid. And let's be honest, money is cool when you're an adult. And so that's the lighthearted perspective uh-huh. on it. But on the darker perspective, it's like at any cost to buy any and everything. Let's yeah. let's get it done. Like every and, everyone has a price. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, exactly. And so going back to questions surrounding her receipt of an allowance, we only see her use money to purchase tools of vengeance, which again, is not a good look. Uh, a sentient endangered animal locked in a too small for it cage. Yes, please, Matilda, order for one. Ding, it's arrived. <laughs> You'd think that because she was literally just reading about wild horses in Red Pony and animal training, Mm -hmm. that she'd be more aware of literal animal cruelty of her choices right now, right? So it's, it's very, very interesting that we see just how intelligent she is, and yet some mistakes that, again, a five-year-old, but an intelligent one nonetheless, makes. Right. And it's, and it's all calculated, like we're yep. like we've been talking. She's been through this plan. She's thought about it. She's planned her counterattack, and she's she's not thinking about the animal cruelty, you know, part of it. Peta is going to write to her one day, and after doing this exchange with Fred, uh, in exchange for her, her pocket money, she she goes and shoves Chopper up a chimney. Uh, we can only hope and assume that it's not winter. The Werewoods aren't using their fireplace, but no, she she just shoves the bird up there, cage and all. There's a there's an image in the book of her, you know, shoving the the cage up the chimney uh, and leaves to wait. And when the bird talks for a moment, she says, "Shut up, you nut!" Which, kind of like you were talking about earlier, there's a light and a dark side, right? And on the light side, it seems precocious, yeah, which it is. "Shut up, you nut!" is funny coming from a, f- a four and a half year old kid, but it's also not because, as I mean, I know this from being parent to a four year old. Kids learn from their parents. Kids learn how to talk from their parents, and so Tilda has clearly picked up a lot of how she talks from her very, very uncouth, profane father. Yep, and I mean everything that 
we learn from our parents, from our mentors, from the books and things that we watch. We are sponges, particularly as children. I remember mm -hmm. Lion King, one of my favorite movies, and I parroted on a play date um, Scar's line, I'm surrounded by idiots. And I meant it as a joke, but I had gotten into such trouble for it because of how how hurtful it could be to hear mm -hmm. someone say that, even though I was parroting something and meaning something funny. And so, you know, I, we don't want to put Matilda full on blast here, right? But it, it you can see immediately Roald Dahl teaching children and adults the lessons of behaviors that you see can be parroted back for good and for ill. Right. And and thinking about this from the kid's perspective for a, uh, for a second, you know, when, when kids imitate, they don't necessarily think that they're doing anything malicious, like you mentioned. They're just imitating. And when they get in trouble for it, a lot of times the reaction from the, from the kid's point of view is, well, why am I being punished or why am I in trouble? I'm just, I'm literally repeating what I've heard other people say, especially other adults say. So why should I get in trouble? And so... I think Dahl does a wonderful job making us aware here of how of how this dynamic works. And and yeah, I mean children are are such good imitators. My my kid told my mother-in-law once you know, I, I think he heard it in a television show that she could drift her car if she just, quote, focused her mind. And, and they are good imitators, but we always have to be aware of the trouble that kids can get into, but also where it comes from. Yep. And so we've seen Matilda shove the poor bird up a chimney. She, she goes and cleans off her hands and the family eventually sits down to dinner. And of course, this is where Matilda's plan kind of comes to fruition and the bird in the other room starts repeating, hello, hello and calling down to uh, calling out to the family hello hello exactly. yeah and and of course the the family appropriately reacts uh the the mother turns white and cries out for her husband to go deal with the burglars she says collar them which is uh vocab here to slang for uh restraining or detaining somebody either physically or figuratively like grabbing somebody by the collar she says to harry wormwood go deal with it because she thinks the burgers are probably after the silver interestingly enough they, they they have they have the silver so here again we have that symbolism of of materiality and then uh, interestingly she she does and grabs she does go and grab a poker from the fireplace to to de to defend herself and her family so then you know we kind of move on from mother to brother michael he says that he hears it too he hears it the bird saying hello and like we said in our last uh, deep dive he he acts like a like a brave little gryffindor here he said come on then the brother said come on mum and he he seizes a table lamp ripping the plug out of its socket impetuous but but brave as well. And again, we're reminded here a little bit that it's sad that we don't see his and Matilda's relationship ever develop. You know, maybe the school gap, maybe the age gap is too much, but we just don't ever see that picture. It's, it's like he, uh, he almost has to compartmentalize his sister so that he can survive at home uh, in the way that he only knows how. And so whole family is tense at this point, and we get Finally, to Harry Wormwood, who we know talks a big game. He he thinks so much of himself, but he's not. He's not brave at all. He is so incredibly scared, probably all the time. We've been talking about control here. He strikes me as somebody who is always scared of losing control. And in the book, the quote is, the father didn't move. There, there again, the father. He seemed in no hurry to dash off and be a hero. His face had turned gray. And kind of like going back to how he's rat-like face turning gray. He's definitely not winning any Courage Awards, any Gryffindor Awards here. Turning gray, rat-like, there's that Peter Pettigrew look again. And then we kind of have to think about is you know is he is he is he maybe street smart is he street smart at all he he must think that uh him being clever has helped deliver treasure and and success to the family um but that's just money that's not knowledge and courage and so in the book he can only uh wipe his lips nervously with his napkin and says why don't we all go and look together he said he he grabs a golf club and 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 walks off with his family not in front of them to confront these intruders i don't know that he seems like a golfer 
golfer, but he seems like the, more like the kind of person who would keep golf clubs as a status symbol because he thinks that's what he should have. And finally, Matilda, being the actress that she is, fakes surprise and runs and turns off the TV to hear the voice better. There, you know, controls the television. I think it's the first time we see her controlling the television. It might be the only time we actually yeah. see her do anything with the television physically. Yeah, totally. And and she, of course, maybe the classic Slytherin move, takes the knife she'd been eating with to confront the intruders. The illustration is of a, is of, a of a butter knife, uh, maybe an, and maybe that's an uh, indication that she knows that she doesn't need a knife or a sword to do damage. And as, as we'll see later, the, the pen or the chalk is mightier. Absolutely. And, yeah. and you see for the imagery in the book, Matilda in the lead, Michael right behind her, then the mom who opens the door all on page 47, Uh and on a completely separate picture, art has hidden significance, well behind the others is the father. And it's compelling to see how they all act, at least three out of four of them when they're afraid. And it'd be incredibly interesting to see if and how the dynamic could have changed if Matilda wasn't in charge of the ruse and this actually was a break-in, not that we'd ever wish that on anyone, but if this was an actual break-in, would Michael the Gryffindor lead the charge? It seems odd to, to us, but again, not odd for the Wormwood family, perhaps, to have the most physically vulnerable person, a young little girl, out front, and yet this is what we're seeing. Next, though, we see brave Matilda burst into the room yelling, come on, brandishing her her knife. Stick him up, she demands. And you can see the American Western television show influence here as she yells. She continues to yell how she's caught them and they're waving their weapons, but then they stop because no one's there. And it's interesting to see that even though Harry is in the back and clearly not wanting to protect them, it's the mom who's still screeching and quaking and crying out to him. So even Their poor kids in front. (laughs) Yeah, the poor kids are out in front. Harry's way, way in the back. And with Mrs. Wormwood in the middle of them all, it's very interesting that she's allowing her kids to be out and most vulnerable and turning to her skittish husband who is not going to save anyone's butts, let alone his own, if this were a real situation. Yeah. And here, and here we have them not knowing how to deal with the situation. At least three of the Wormwoods don't at least. And then everybody gets freaked out because uh, chopper of the chimney starts saying, rattle my bones, rattle my bones. And, it, they, they all jump. Matilda, who is a pretty good actress, it turns out. Um, there's that Slytherin again in her, potentially. Uh, she knows how to deceive um, those closest to her to achieve those goals. And she and she's the one, of course, who says, it's a ghost. That, that assertion uh, causes her mother to cry out, to even clutch uh, Mr. Wormwood around the neck. Save us, she screams, almost seemingly <laughs> throttling her. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's really sad how they, they never have any positive physical uh, interactions. They just, uh, her, her own fear uh, expresses itself, uh, you know, to, to cause pain in her husband, even in this situation. Um, and she's completely ignoring her kids here. But Matilda here, uh, you know, milks that story saying she's heard it before. She thought that they knew about it. Again, here we have Matilda's knowledge being deployed uh, to to terrify her mother and her father uh, further, and so much so that the father announces that he's getting out of there. He doesn't cry out that they should all go. He says, I'm getting out of here, uh, the father said, grayer than ever now. There's that gray again, and he's just looking out for himself. I'm getting out of here. Um, but, of course, they all leave. We have no idea where they go or what they talk about, but you know, we we end up back the next day. Yeah, and and you you know, we want to remind our readers lying is not okay, but we see once again Matilda learning the power of a lie and how to wield it successfully, quote unquote, to get her family scared. But is that truly success? We would argue. No. 
Right. And and speaking of lies, of course, they they get back into the house. She goes and gets uh, Chopper, the parrot, from the chimney. He's sooty and grumpy. Not surprising because he probably hasn't eaten in a day and he's been shoved up a chimney. And and speaking of lies, she, she returns it to Fred and said, we had a lovely time with it. She said, my parents adored it, which which is funny to the readers, of course. But again, it's just just a, a, a bald faced lie to her to her friend. And, and and that and that false narrative covers up everything. Um, and you have to ask what what is the lesson here? It's just pure unadulterated uh, vengeance on her family and just lies all around. And uh, Sarah, like you said, we have to wonder what success is because I'm sure she sees this as a success. The reader is meant to see it as a success, but is it really? I don't know. Yeah, one one could argue as we transition into our thoughts to think on if this is what Matilda is starting to believe success is. Returning to our theme, perhaps she's losing control of what success actually is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, perfect. I guess we could, yeah, transitioning now to uh, kind of the thoughts that we want to leave you with. But but I think that's a perfect point that left alone, Matilda's idea of success could very well be these cycles of vengeance and and war, right? So stay tuned for the rest of the book to see what will happen, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. In today's episode, we focused on situations in which people like Harry Wormwood or Walter White think they have control over their material goods or wealth, their home, or even their families, when in reality, the opposite is true. These things or their ideas of what a successful father figure is or head of household control them and Mr. Wormwood and Mr. White's lack of control makes them incredibly angry people even if they don't understand why. So perhaps one of the things that we hope that we ourselves and you, dear listener, can think on is what should one do in those times when patience is being tested to remain in control, to choose the kind path, to choose to pick up a book instead of shove a parrot up a chimney. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and maybe even how not to get into that situation in the first place, right? Where you where you think that you need something like like Mr. Wormwood and, and Walter White as a symbol of success and then lose control um, at, in a, a, a misguided quest to either get or maintain those symbols. Definitely some some things to think about. And so, yes, thank you, dear listener, for tuning in to this episode, our fourth one. Thanks to our reviewers, Matt and Jeremy, and sound expert Alex for helping us improve our audio. Uh, Bohemian Geek Studies is available everywhere, so share the good news uh, so that your book-loving buddies can come and join our bibliophile party. Love it and appreciate it, and check out our Instagram and Twitter feeds where we will be posting reader stories and reactions actions. Thank you so much for sharing in our shared adventure. Wands up and keep those pages turning. Wands up. What shall we do to entertain our darling children? Please explain. We'll answer this by asking you, what used? What used? Yeah, huh. What used the darlings one to do? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, nice. Yeah, that. Those, there are a couple of interesting turns of language in there, huh? Yeah. yeah.